Kia and welcome back to another episode of In The Sheds on Code with Kingy, where it is my great pleasure to be joined by a Southland Stags legend and weirdly a now a member of the Otago uh, senior sides coaching staff in Jamie McIntosh. First of all, brother, thank you very much for your time and how's things? Uh, cheers, Kingy. No, it's good to, good to have a chat, brother. I've been in Manor's isolation. I'm on day 12 with two to go, so... Um... Any company is good company in this situation, my man. <laughs> now, we were touching on um, quarantine life for you and how this is your first sort of go around with the New Zealand thing and how you're doing a bit of coaching to help pass the time. But, you know, you've just got back from America. So do you want to touch on, you know, your latest season over there and how's your body feeling after it all? Yeah, look, I'm 36 now, bud. Um, but no, nah, my body's still feeling pretty good. I've got a, the odd sore knee and a bit of Achilles tendonitis, but... No, I had an amazing experience over there, man, like um, like a long, long story about how I got there. But I had an experience in America in between. I was at Montpellier on a medical joker, and um, I had a four-month sort of little break in rugby before I started up with Poe, um, which is where I ended up playing four or five years in the top 14 with. Um, and I, I went to America and played in this first professional competition, met heaps of great people, and I think sort of fell back in love with rugby, really. Um, I walked into a room into a team full of boys that I didn't know one person's name, which was very rare and just fell back in love with getting them better and coaching them and being involved in a group. So after I finished in France, I always wanted to go back and the major league rugby was kicking off. And um, actually I'd flown over to to Seattle to double champs and done some work with them. And um, I just heard a few things were going a bit pear shaped up there. And one of my friends rang me one night. I was on the, I was on the bears at a, at a wedding in Ireland actually. And uh, he said, mate, Seattle's shit. I'm not enjoying it. Should we go somewhere else? So we made a bit of a drunken decision and ended up in Austin for the MLR team down there that hadn't won a game in four years. And we both signed there for bugger all money. I was just on the way home back to New Zealand to play ITM Cup and do some coaching and ended up swinging in there last year and playing four games and COVID hit and come home. And then Austin got bought by a huge uh, Australian financial guru a guy Adam Gilchrist not the cricketer really interesting bloke he he founded F45 the gym uh, made millions off that made millions off property and he bought two franchises he bought the Austin franchise the Gilgronies and he bought the LA franchise the Giltinis and he's pumping a lot a lot of money into it and our program just took off so this year was an amazing year really we had better players uh, awesome training facility and pretty much unlimited resources to be as good as we could be. And it was an amazing time. We won 10 games and lost six. And I think our last game against LA, we lost by sort of four points or five, maybe six points. And if we had won that game, we would have been in the conference playoff against them. So we had a really good team. We just come up short at the end of the season. Yeah, well, just before we get on to what your latest season was, yeah, Pele had made a mention um, when I looked to uh, link this whole conversation up. Shout out to Pele Cowley. Very much um, appreciative of you <laughs> doing this for me, bro. Um, he's up in the room up just above me. I, I, I'd imagine he's up to no good up there, brother. 
Yeah, but I don't even want to think about what that fella's up to. But you talked about how you were, well, you were really one of the first Kiwis to get over to America and, um, you know, test out the waters over there. So how far has the, has the game come stateside? Because if you look at, you know, some of the athletes that are playing sevens these days, they're almost like a sleeping giant. So for someone like you who's sort of seen it from day dot, to where you know you said now that you've got these awesome training facilities and the teams you're playing and you know are, are relatively competitive like where do you see america going from there and yeah could you touch on like the development of the game over there yeah really oh, huge um improvements i think that the top five six teams in the competition mlr would um compete in the itm cup they'd receive the odd hiding but la utah austin new york atlanta New Orleans off the top of my head, they're good programs and they do particularly, I think they would compete. But when I went there five years ago, mate, honestly, I've never seen anything like it. Like we, in fact, the Ohio Aviators had a great team. We ended up having 11 or 12 internationals in that team. But I remember my first game flying into Colorado and the snow was on the field. It had to be cleared about an hour before kickoff. We had two line-out calls, red and blue. I think we had 16 line-outs for the game and lost like 14 of them. Um, we were the fittest, most committed team. I'd like one of the most committed teams I've played in and professionally. I don't know why. We just had a great culture. That game, we went over the line. We, we ended up losing 36-28 and we dropped the ball four times over the try line. And um, we didn't have a runners off nine calls. We didn't have runners off 10. We didn't have anything. But the guys in our team knew that that wasn't right. Like, we had the um, American halfback. We had a lot of guys, Dom Waldock from overseas, who played for the English team. Our coaches were such good guys that, like, we couldn't really just come in initially and tell them what to do. So we had to get their respect. So I remember after that game, mate, we went back to Ohio, and I remember turning up training on Monday being like, fuck, we've got a lot to sort out. Like, we have got so much to do here. And our coach, there was no markings on the field, no posts up just two cones set up and he got his phone out and said, we're going to practice scoring tries. And we had the whole team lined up in a single file line and he passed us the ball and we had to dive at the cone and score a try. And he was <laughs> laughing and we did it for about 10 minutes. And <laughs> so for that four months, mate, I could not, I've not been part of a team that's improved so much. So we went from losing games because we couldn't catch balls and score tries to like, having a proper attacking system, a really good line out, a great more, a great scrum. And after four months, we ended up into the final and um, being one of the best team in the competition, which was amazing. So um, in the right pathway and the right structures, MLR in the first two years was probably the quality was back. Even last year when I went there and I had four games before COVID hit, the quality and the difference between teams was huge. And then coming back this year, the level had gone up huge. I mean, I talked to a young boy, Harrison Boyle. Uh, he's he's from Otago. Do you, do you know? Yeah, him? I played. So last year, I was player coach with Otago. I just well, I just did the scrum, and I was I think I played a nine games. So I know Boyle well. Yeah, yeah. And he, I, well, I talked to him a couple of weeks ago, and I talked to him about the standard of rugby over there, and how he said that, you know, given the athletes that they have over there, they can do all right, sort of in different in certain positions. You know, like your number eights, your locks, and your props, and maybe your midfielders because they have the size and the athletic prowess, but it's more so those key game drivers that is probably holding them back from uh, really making like a big stamp uh, in the test arena, you know, for their national team. But yeah, it's it's a pretty exciting time, you know, given 
guys like yourself the opportunity to give back and, and young players like Harrison the opportunity to you know, potentially kickstart their careers if they're not getting a look in back here in Aotearoa. Um, but then, yeah. yeah, No, massively. I think fundamentally the boys struggle a little bit over there. Like, for example, like hook is a big area throwing-wise. You know, it's a, it's a hard skill to get good at and we get growing up with it. But like when you think about Americans growing up and rugby wasn't part of their lives, all fundamentally all the sports that they played growing up was advancing the ball downwards coming out of your hand forward. So like basketball throwing it forward, gridiron throwing it forward, baseball throwing it forward. So the concept of catching a ball and passing it back to look for space in front of you and, and using a different concept was, it, you can tell that it um, comes naturally to us boys because we grew up with it. And those guys are just starting to hone their catch and pass and spatial awareness and all that kind of stuff because they've they've always had a different concept of sports growing up. Oh, yeah, totally. I, I hadn't even really thought about that. But yeah, before we crack on, I guess that the thing for me, you know, again, for you, who's a who's an experienced guy, uh, do you just see, do you, or do you feel like there's an interest enough in the States for the game to really blow up? Like it's one thing to, you know, have all these Kiwis and have all these other um, internationals from around the world who grew up with rugby coming over to the game and helping influence, you know, some of the guys who are interested in it stateside. But you're only really going to see that next level of development if there's, you know, interest from investors, interest from the crowds to turn up to the games, you know, interest from kids who are potentially sick of playing football. Because, I mean, like, when I look at the, some of the sports over in the States, you know, size dictates a lot of the stuff. I mean, it's similar to rugby now, but, you know, like rugby is really a game where it doesn't really matter what shape or size you are, there's a position for you. Whereas I feel like in baseball, I mean, basketball, you got to be tall to begin with. And in, in football, like those guys are giants. So do you see, you know, rugby really being able to take off? Like, or do you, like, how, like, how does a sport like this, you know, coinciding with, you know, like the success that they're having, you know, with their soccer team, like how does rugby for you, you know, take that next step forward? Yeah. Well, Two things is one's a major TV marketing deal because, and they're not far off that because that puts it on the TV where people watch it. Um, the thing about American sport is you're at such a high level at college with college football. And when you're 23, 24, playing in hundreds of thousands of people and everyone knowing your name, if you're not drafted to the NFL, that's the end of your sporting career. Rugby gives them the ability to keep playing sport. It's low cost. All you need is a mouth guard and a pair of boots. And a lot of the American people love the physicality. Like everybody comes to watch it. Like, and to be fair, our crowds are growing. I mean, you could argue that ITM Cup is dwindling, and it is. Like, we're getting um, the same amount of crowds now, or like similar crowds to some of our games to ITM Cup games, and we're in year three or four of a competition. So, they did a statistic in the Seattle City Wolves rugby team at uh, Starfire Stadium, are averaging. Three and a half thousand supporters a game this year it was four thousand, um, and they're in their third year professional, and that's where their their soccer team, the MLR soccer team, started. Mm-hmm. The eight years later, the soccer team plays at the same stadium as the Sea Wolves and sells out the bottom ring every home game for twenty three thousand. So, the first three years, the soccer team only averaged two thousand people a crowd. So the rugby team's on a projected pathway to be if not better than the soccer team in Seattle. But you've got to take into account that soccer is a far more global game in the world and got a lot more pull to it. So there's no doubt about it. TV deals, the more we grow it and the more it becomes a, a program in uh, high schools and universities, it's going to take off. And it's, yeah, it's, there's, 
it's definitely it's been the fastest growing team sport in America for I think five years in a row. So it, it is a sleeping giant. It's just how do you stick it all together in in such a big country? How do you create a platform and a pathway for people to be like to get really good at it? Yeah, mate. But I think we can both agree once they figure all that stuff out, like we said with all the athletes they have over there, <laughs> the rest of the world's <laughs> in trouble. Insane. Mate, yeah, like we've got like peers will tell you, man, we've got freaks in our team, like our blindside flanker, he's Hawaiian, um, one of the most talented athletes I'm I've ever seen in my life. He's only 104 kilos and he benches 190 kilos. He's got the biggest vertical jump I've ever seen. And on the field, like it's just his ability to stay on his feet through contact. Oh, he's just a freak. And the, every team's got three or four of them. So yep, I agree with you, bro. It's gonna be once that all comes together, it's going to be a, a scary, scary thing. <laughs> yeah, hopefully it doesn't come along in my lifetime, so I have to deal with them playing <laughs> the All Blacks. Um, but um, before we get into where you grew up and how you started playing rugby, bro, I was hoping that you'd do me and the listeners a favour and letting us know how your nickname Whopper came about. Mate, it was a really simple story. Um, I was called Pies at school because I was obviously fat. And my little brother made the first 15 and he was called Savory and he's still called Saves to this day. So pies and saves. Um, and then, yeah, I was just on the Honda's physio table my first year out of high school and I jumped up and the masseuse was like, what a fucking whopper. And everyone started giggling. And then I'd write my name up on the board to go to physio as Jamie and he'd change it to whopper. And now everybody just knows me as whopper, even my brothers and sisters and, the only people who don't call me Whopper's mum and dad. <laughs> what is that physio's name? Sounds like a bit of a legend. Jocko Parker. He reckons he's my old man. <laughs> <laughs> he's well, a he very did, funny guy. <laughs> well, he did name you in a, in a weird way. He nicknamed you, but yeah. Cool. He reckons, right. that, he reckons that Jimmy Cow and Amir has lost sons that he um, somehow created in his lifetime. So he, he, he's... We always had a lot, a lot of laughs. <laughs> well, shout out to him, bro. Um, and yeah, rolling on from that, can you take us back to Day Dot and talk about where you grew up and how you even got into playing rugby? Um, just a really rural Invercargill, oh, well, sorry, um, country boy lifestyle, eh? So we grew up on a sheep farm 40 minutes south of or east of west, actually. Don't even fucking know. Um, of Invercargill and like a place called Tokanui and a little school, Waimahaka. Um, from the top of our farm, you can see Stuart Island. And it was a pretty um, awesome place to grow up. Got um, two older sisters and a younger brother. And my high uh, primary school, from when I was five to 13, there was only 12 or 11 of us at the school. <laughs> so I come from a pretty humble sort of small background, but wicked growing up on the farm. Lots to do. I think I said this to someone the other day. It's really growing up on the farm with hard work sort of taught me my work ethic and um, a lot of things that correlated over to rugby really so I've got a lot to thank for um, such a wicked upbringing. And so from there you go on to board at Southland Boys and you know given what you just told me about only sharing a school with a dozen other kids what was that shock like once you go to an all boys boarding school and you, you move a little bit more centrally like did you enjoy uh, really it off the bat or? No I really struggled I was like quite anxious and I remember my first day at school, like I burst into tears like three or four times. Like, I didn't even, we had different blocks. So block one, two, three, four, you got mess in block one and 
you got your home room over here. And I, I honestly didn't have a fucking idea. And I still remember to this day, it was a really hard transition, but it took me a while to set into, settle into it. Like sort of, you know, at the same time, the hostel was a pretty ruthless place back then. A lot of bullying and a lot of stuff that's going on there. So it takes you probably six months to a year, you find your feet. And then after that, I just loved it. And how else did the school, or did, you know, where does Southam Boys High and that time in your life, you know, sort of rank for you and how it shaped you as a man? And did it help propel your rugby career? That was probably the reason, the sole reason why I sort of played rugby, really. Like, I always wanted to be, I think from like 12 or 13, I knew I wanted to be like a rugby player. It's quite competitive and I was always too heavy to make the age group weight teams. And when I got to boys high, I made the under 15 tournament team when I was third form and had three years in that. And then I was big, so I was always playing against older guys. So I was always quite anxious and scared. Well, you know, I was like, a scary thing to do to be 13 or 12 and play against 15, 16 year olds. And then, I don't know, that sort of set me up. And I had a very influential first 15. Peter Scout was our coach and many rugby players you'll speak to, mate. Like everybody has, a, everybody from a good rugby background has either got massive respect for their first 15 coach. And Scout is no different. He created such a massive culture at that school. And we're a role of 400 and 400 sort of little South and white boys in my three years in the first 15, we went to the top four twice, lost the semifinals against Napier and Rotorua boys by like three or four points both times. And um, we were tough and we trained tough and it was hard work and um, I learned a lot. Yeah. So I got a lot, a lot goes back to my first 15 years and Peter Scout. If I remember rightly, I had Ethan DeGroote on the podcast at the start of the year and I'm pretty sure that's the same <coughs> name that he he dropped to me and, 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 you know, the guy that helped him go to Southam Boys because, yeah, for initially, like, he'd left school um, at Gore High and taken up, you know, like, the, the whole tradie lifestyle but ended up hating it and wanted to get back into rugby and thought that going back to school would be the best place for him to kick on. And, yeah, Southam Boys does have a, um, a pretty established record of producing some high-quality rugby players, mate. And if my research um, has done me right... It said here that you played three years of New Zealand schools, NZ under-19s and NZ Colts, and you also captained <laughs> all three sides at some stage. Now, is that true? And if so, that is an otherworldly resume. Yeah, I was pretty lucky. Like, I was big, but, um, yeah, I did. I made the New Zealand schools for three years, and I captained them. Um, my first year, We I actually played 32 age cake games for New Zealand. 16 of them were test matches for the New Zealand schools team and the other 16 were for the 19s and 21s. And yeah, I captained the 19s for two years, the Colts for two, the 21s for two years and yeah, had a had a good run with the New Zealand schools team. But we made top four um, for South and Boys High School and I was trying to make the New Zealand under 16s that year. And we lost to Rotorua in the semi-final, lost to Napier in the third, fourth playoff and then I got told I'd made the trial for the New Zealand schools and I was only 16. I couldn't believe it. And then I made that team and we toured the last schools team for tour of the UK. And we played eight test matches against England, France, Wales and Scotland. So we played the schools and 19s team. Um, we had a mean team like Rokokoko, Benatinga, Luke McAllister, John Afoa. Like There was 18 All Blacks in that team. And then, oh, I don't know the exact stats, but it was massive. And... Then I come back for two weeks and I'd only just got back to school. I was only just turned like 16, turning 17. And then I went up to the New Zealand 19s trials and made that as well. So, yeah, I was really lucky that I got identified pretty young. And then 
I guess the reason I stayed in there was because I worked pretty hard. I always was um, kept myself fit and was very coachable, I think. And yeah, I just had coaches that picked me really, which is really, really fortunate because there's a lot of good players that miss out on that kind of stuff. And I was young and sort of got to see it all really. Well, yeah, mate. Opportunity always meets hard work plus persistence. And given your pedigree as a teenager, and you mentioned the fact that you'd seen yourself, or you'd, you'd envisioned yourself playing rugby as a 12 or 13 year old. So, you know, where did you go once you'd left school? Were you straight into the Southland setup? Yeah. So I was one of those fellas who was, I turned, I was still 17. So I could go back to the, like an eighth form year of school and still be under 18 and still make the New Zealand schoolboys. And I'd got into uni, so I'd got my good marks to get into uni and I had to make a decision, like, do I go back and have another year playing New Zealand 19 schools and having like a good year of rugby or do I go to uni? And I actually got contracted by Rugby Southland when I was at school for three years. So I, my last year at school, I was contracted to the union, which is pretty cool. I could buy the boys uh, beers <laughs> in the weekend and food at the, <laughs> at the tuck shop. And um, my first year out of school, I basically was with the Hollanders full-time. I was on training contracts with them for two years. So I'd, December, January, I'd be with the Hollanders training full-time. And then I'd go away to New Zealand under-19s, come back, um, play a little bit of club rugby and played for Southland my first year out of school. And then, yeah, I was, again, really fortunate that I got put into the system. And like I've, I've never had a another job in my life apart from rugby and I'm 36 so it's been pretty cool it's crazy I mean like you mentioned the fact that you were contracted to Southland whilst you were still at school did you ever come close to playing for them whilst you were still at school no I remember they just put me on a contract because they didn't want me to go into another union and then but I remember being at school and at the hostel and um, Phil Young the Southland coach rang up at lunchtime and asked if I would like to go train with the Southland team so I would turn up to um, turn up to the full South and ITM Cup training out at the beach at Les George in my school uniform and every afternoon, like three afternoons a week. So I got to leave school and go train with him. So it was pretty pretty outrageous. Um, uh, yeah, it was it was a crazy time. And then the next year I was in the team, but all the older boys, Pilate Feely, Paul Miller, Jimmy Cowan, Clark Dermody, they were like, who the fuck's this guy turning up in the school uniform type thing? But are uh, all really nice to me and and geez they trained hard too so it was always I was shitting myself every time I went out there because it was just a massive level up well, I can only imagine but it's fair to say that those years you know as a as a 13 year old playing against 16 year olds um, really puts you in good stead so you yeah, well, to it was play. always yeah. it was always the way because you know I mean like when I was young like at 16 I was playing the English under 19 teams and then I always played older people and I was always nervous and then I always would get out there and play against them and think, oh, this is not too bad and get my confidence. So it happened a lot when I was young. I was going to say as well, like, were you one of those kids growing up where, you know, you'd turn up to your, your under eight game and the parents of the opposition would be questioning whether or not you were under the age of eight just because of how much bigger you were than most of the boys <laughs> you were playing with? Yeah, well, I never got the opportunity to play because I was too heavy. I used to cry to my mum all the time. Um, Why the fuck can I? Like, these guys are better than these guys. She's like, you know, you're just big boned. And I was like, fuck. <laughs> And when I got to high school, that's when I loved it because it was under 14. You could be as big as you wanted. Now, I do remember um, we had a prop who was like full beard. He's the hairiest bloke I've ever met in my life. And he was like a buck 15. I was like a buck 10 or something. And we had to take our passports to the tournament and stuff like that. 
Yeah, but like, I was pretty baby faced too. Like I was like no facial hair, pudgy little face. So you could tell I was pretty young. I was just a big big whopper. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, bro, um, you go on to make your debut for your beloved stags in 2004 off the bench against Waikato. So do you remember much of that game and how it transpired? Ah, yeah, I remember shitting myself. <laughs> um, Even with all that experience? Oh, well, you got to think. I am played New Zealand schools, New Zealand 19s, first year out of school. I'm 19 years old and I'm running on to play ITM Cup, which all the All Blacks used to play in back then. So True, true. Um, I had, I think I scrummed against Nick White that day. He was tough. Um, that year I scrummed against Case Muse, Carl Heyman, Greg Sumville. I'm just a boy. Like, I didn't even know how to scrum. Like, I, it was every game you run out, you're sort of fearing for your life. <laughs> um, but that's that's just the way, you know. You just got to front up and get on with it. And I think that that first year was awesome. I learned heaps. And um, but yeah, it wasn't. It certainly wasn't easy. It was exciting, but it was it was nerve wracking. I can only imagine. Now you ended up notching 123 appearances. Uh, for the Stags, and among all of those outings were two Ranfilly Shield wins, the first being uh, at breaking a 50-year drought in 2009 and the second coming in 2011. So, you know, amongst all those games and, you know, specifically the, those Loggerwood fixtures, amongst your list of rugby accomplishments, where do they sit? Yeah, it was massive because um, I made the All Blacks in 2008 and I was really, really young and um, that was like... And then got dropped in 2009 and I was probably like thought I was definitely getting better as a player through 09, 010, 011. And when you make the All Blacks, you're really sort of nervous and not unsettled, but there's a lot of expectations. So in 2009, when we won the Ranfilly Shield, it was huge because we did something of such a big magnitude with a group of guys that were like my real good mates. It was such a different feeling. It was one of the best feelings like coming home to Southland the airport there was like seven thousand people at the airport and mate we just had this massive three days on the bears and it was unreal and our team was exceptionally good the next week we were like a southern team who was in the major playoffs like there's 14 teams we were ranked number four and we lost to wellington in the last play of the match but through that time the next year like we came back to rugby park 2010 after summer with the shield and um, we played Otago in the first game. There was 16,500 people at Rugby Park. We managed to hold on to the Shield six times. Auckland come down. That was my biggest memory of the Shield. We had a snowstorm in Invercargill that week. Auckland were coming down with a whole lot of All Blacks to take the Shield of us. And everybody was saying, you know, you guys have done amazingly well. It's probably going to come to an end, but you've created this massive culture. And that week there was a snowstorm. The stadium in Southland collapsed. A lot of farmers and my own dad, like they lost heaps of sheep because of the snowstorm, and like there was a bit of chaos really. And um, I remember after that game, we won nine six, and Jason Rutledge dove into the terrace. It was and just oh, the terrace just engulfed him, and and I ran over to the other stand and um, see my dad and my mom and that, and that my dad was crying. So that was like massive moment for me, um, knowing that our team had like in a fucking time where people were in a bit of a hole it's funny that sport can like give people a little bit of a a bump and a release around from normal life and and how much like we can positively impact people just on a day-to-day basis because at times it's freaking hard like you're in the spotlight and people want to have a shot at you and talk shit about you but 
also the positiveness that it creates around the place, like workplaces talking about the games in the weekend and and giving people a, a different thing to speak about apart from just nine to five stuff. So yeah, it was a huge bit of um, a huge moment of my life, really. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a massive shame the I guess the demise of the provincial competition and I mean you talk about like the log of wood and how much it meant for you in the city of Southland and I feel like now I mean you probably saw it last year with Taranaki I think they um, put on a pretty hefty celebration but just with the decline in the provincial game I don't know it, it's it somewhat sucks because you know I grew up you know supporting Wellington and you know watching the New, New Zealand Cup religiously just because of you know the caliber of talent that was going through but I guess just with the the evolution of the game and um, how much you know more time and money's invested in Super Rugby it's sort of leaving the the provincial stuff to the side and I talked about this um, with a couple of people I've had on my podcast the fact that for a lot of people they don't really have an attachment to a Super Rugby team because it's made up of so many different unions whereas like you said, for someone, you know, for a team like Southland, you know, they're a representation of the city. Like the Hurricanes aren't a representation of Wellington. They're a representation of Wellington, Manawatu, the Hawks Bay and whoever else. So I don't know, is, is it weird for you, you know, like given, you know, like all of your experiences and, you know, especially coming from a place like Southland who takes a lot of pride in the rugby team to see the way that the game's sort of going now? Yeah, well, it's huge, you know, like the ITM Cup, um, all the All Blacks used to play in it and, I think that made it a better competition, but just naturally the way rugby went with the tri-nations and four-nations and stuff, like that was a far better platform for the All Blacks to play more tests and, and, and obviously make a lot of money so the game in New Zealand can grow. And yeah, I don't know, the, it seems to be not so just the ITM Cup, but like a bit of a, a culture change in New Zealand around supporting rugby and, and fans coming to the stadium, which is a bit of a... I'm not too sure why, but it seems like a massive effort to get people to come to games when back when I used to play, we like particularly super rugby, we'd have big crowds and um, I don't know the, the exact recipe to change it around, but I think that the ITM Cup's critical for New Zealand rugby um, development. That's what sets us apart from the world because we get a nurture and development talent at a level before super rugby where you see the guys in Australia go from like shoot shield into into Super Rugby and it's the two biggest step and they really struggle. So there's got to be a recipe we can find to make it better because it's such a critical part. And I still think the provincialism's there. Like I know a lot of people do really enjoy the ITM Cup because they see players from their club competition playing on TV and people they've touched and felt and seen before. Where sometimes the Super Rugby is not people that you've seen and felt and touched from your region and and they don't have that same sort of like patriotic connection to them. So, yeah, I, I don't know the answer, but I know it's a huge part of us. So we need to keep it going no matter what. And we need to res- somehow um, change our culture into New Zealand to not watching rugby on TVs and getting out and supporting your teams more. So whether we're making tickets cheaper or the product better, like in America, the product before the games is, you know, we're $5 tickets with, $2 beers and live music and the, like even at our MLR state, it's just people love coming to the event because it's an event where here people go to watch the rugby and go home. So maybe we can do strategizing around that. But again, that costs money. So yeah, I don't know. I'd love to see more people at stadiums and um, I would love to see the provincial competition remain a real forefront in New Zealand rugby. 
I think you hit the nail on the head there when you talk about that relatability and people getting in behind their provincial teams because the, the players in that team are, you know, a, a Joe Bloggs from their local rugby club. But yeah, like you said, I think that um, there does need to be a bit of work done and trying to entice fans to get along and support their teams in the stands because whether we like to admit it or not, I feel like the fans add to the atmosphere of the games. You know, like there's, oh, yeah. you, could have a, you could have a really, really tight game but if you throw in a crowd on top of that, it just amplifies things, even from a spectator's point of view, you know, whilst they're watching the game on TV. So, yeah, like you, I don't yeah, have so all the answers of, for that. One of my big things about France was we would play in front of, our home crowd was on average 10 to, you know, like 18,000 was a full stadium. and But our stadium was built at sort of a capacity where eight or 10,000 people was chocker. So mm. I think that, to create a better atmosphere at the games. And I know everyone talks about it as like, can we build, like in America, well, it's America, they just build a stadium because they love it. But four or five or six of our MLR stadiums that have been built for us purposely to play and seat about 5,000 people and they're really intimate. The, the stands are close to the game. They're sitting on top of the game. And if there's 3,000 people there, it feels like a really cool event where we tend to play ITM Cup in the big stadiums and um, like Auckland, and there might only be, you know, a few thousand people there and you feel like you're playing in the middle of nowhere. So that could be a challenge to get out and build or create smaller platforms where it's a lot more atmosphere. And then I think that people would start really enjoying turning up and getting the fizz. But yeah, obviously massive, <laughs> there's, there's massive repercussions to that too. We've got beautiful stadiums. Why don't we use them? Yeah, like you said, well, like I just said before, bro, agreeing with you. I don't have all the answers, but I remember Wellington had a game last year or the year before at one of the uh, one of the local club stadiums. Well, you know, it's, it's, it's a local council ground, like it's well looked after, got stands, and the game just looked that much more appealing on telly just because, like you said, it just seemed a lot more intimate, even though there were probably the same amount of fans as you would get at the Caketon because yeah. of all the empty yellow seats. It's just like, oh, right. That does not look like a place I want to be, especially like in West. <laughs> I think the beauty of like now down in um, Dunedin, I think the fact they got Forsyth Bar with that that closed roof, that uh, I'm not sure whether that adds to getting people along. But yeah, in Wellington, especially like in the middle of winter, like you said, when you're when you've already got a a level of rugby that's below, you know what people are seeing for the other half of the year with the All Blacks and Super Rugby. You know, if you throw on on top of that, you know the wind that we get and and the rain. Yeah. Uh, yeah and plus you know like the the feeling of being amongst an empty crowd um it really yeah doesn't um make for an appealing afternoon or night <laughs> no you're right but yeah more back to you though my bro um next up for you footy wise uh was with the highlanders where you made your debut in 2007 and you mentioned the fact that you'd pretty much been with them from the time you left school so and i, and I know you were young but again given your pedigree and um the the time you'd spent with the Southland team. Why did it sort of take you a couple of years to crack that 07 team? I got, I signed on a full training contract for 03, 04. No, sorry, 04, 05. That was my first two years out of school. And then 06, I actually got picked in the full squad and um, the All Black coaches flew down and had a meeting with me and just said, look, you're only 21 if you're the fourth prop in the Hollanders, you're going to have to play a lot of rugby and we just don't think you're physically mature enough to do that. And it made a lot of sense. So in 2006, I 
turn down a full super rugby contract to do another training year with them. Plus I, you know, I had captain of the New Zealand Colts that year and had a lot of rugby on. So um, it was a bit hard at the time. And like, you know, it was 65 grand versus 20 grand. And at yeah, that time yeah. of your life, that's huge. And but you're never not going to listen to the All Black coaches. And <clears throat> so I did another year in 2006 training where I thought maybe I could have played a couple of games. But again, at 21 or 20, that's huge step up from ITM Cup to play Super Rugby against international props. And even in 2007, in my first year, it was probably a good time to start. And I played three or four games, not that many. We had good front rows. We had Oliver Heyman, Dermody, Chris King. And then it wasn't really until 2008, Clarkey left to go overseas and I started every game that year and had a really good Super Rugby season. And I was probably, I think from what I got told, was pretty close to going to be kicked picked in the um, Tri-Nations All Black squad. And then I ended up rupturing my turf toe, which gave me a lot of trouble during my career. I ruptured this ligament under my foot. Um, so I didn't make the Tri-Nations and had 12 weeks in a moon boot and come back and played ITM Cup that year and um, was still pretty sore, but had a good season. And then I ended up getting picked on that end of year tour in 2008. So I was still pretty young um, and hadn't played a lot of Super Rugby when I was picked in that team. So it all happened pretty quick, to be fair. Yeah, bro. And before we get on to that All Black stuff, um, like you said, you mentioned the fact that you know, the All Black coaches come in, come down to talk to you and sway you into what well, they thought it was in your best interest and their best interest for your career long-term that you, you know, rather than go full steam ahead into it, you just spend that time training. So by the time that 07 campaign came around and you know they gave you the green light to just go balls to the wall, yeah, was it just that easier transition for you, you know, given how much time you just spent around the team full stop? Or like, did it actually take you a couple of games into Super Rugby to really feel like, okay, yep, I'm here, I can do this? Um, no, nah, definitely took me like that year. I Again, you're up another level, you're nervous still. Like, you know, like I, it took me quite a while to become comfortable at Super Rugby because you're just playing against such better players. But no, I don't think it made me, I think it just maybe save my body a little bit more because I evidently through my career, I beat my body up pretty hard. eh? So there was no two props on the bench until later on in my career. So every game I played for Southam was 80 minutes. Every game I played for the Hondas was 80 minutes. I ended up having 11 surgeries throughout my career and played with a lot of injuries, which I mean, a lot of players do. It's You don't need a medal to do it, but you end up playing injured and playing sore a lot. And I guess... Yeah, I, I think the ramifications of not having to do that in 2006 might have been beneficial, but who knows? I could have could have had a good Super Rugby season in 2006 and been in a better position in 2007. So, yeah, there's always positives and negatives, I guess. There's another great point you raised playing through injury and doing, you know, that just seems to be a common occurrence amongst all you professional footy boys. But, you know, looking back on your career, was there, was there ever a specific injury or specific niggle that in hindsight you felt it'd be better off actually, you know, giving it a couple more weeks rest? Yeah, 100% all the time. But it's a weird culture because if you don't play sore or you don't play injured, there's a difference between being injured and injured. Like, you might tweak your MCL and you can hardly walk a week, but you're not stable when you play the next week. And or uh, um, I've done that a few times, and so have a lot of people. But <clears throat> the amount of times we got AC, AC joints injected and wrists, I broke my wrist in 2009, two weeks before the Shield game, and I was out for like three months. But I'd come like I got a cast made, and like I, 
I wasn't any tougher than anyone else. I, when I played, they injected it, so I couldn't feel it. But yeah, it, it's interesting. Like my foot injury was really serious and probably impacted me and my scrummaging for like three or four years. Like, uh, like your plantar plate and your foot's what you push off, and I ruptured that. And then to come back and scrum and put like hundreds of like kilos of pressure, thousands of kilos of pressure through it, it was. It took me a long time to get over. Played with, you know, osteitis pubis in my groin, which is a really bad injury. And I had a season with that before I had a four-hour surgery on that. There's, uh, the, you know, like everybody's got some similar stories. I don't regret it, no, because if you didn't, you know, you, um, I wouldn't have played as many pro games as I have. But if, you know, if you concede to every little niggle and injury, unfortunately, you're not going to get picked or played. So there's a fair degree of... Um, you know, fronting up. And I think that nowadays that people, um, and particularly teams, are a lot more, a bit more player welfare based, which is quite nice. Like they won't push head injuries, which is massive for me. I don't like people being rushed back from that kind of stuff. But if this injury is looking a bit more serious, they'll take a lot more care. Where back then it was, you know, we were still like, we were getting after it and playing injured was part of it. So maybe, yeah, I, do I regret it? No, but maybe in a couple of years' time when I've got arthritis, I will, but I'm hoping modern medicine keeps getting better and I'll be okay. <laughs> I think that's one of the things that I like to shine a light on with this podcast is just the realities of being a professional athlete. And one of the boys I had on a couple of weeks ago, uh, Pepe Patafilo, he talked about how he was coming to the end of his Lions contract and he hadn't quite cracked it. He was sort of at that in-between stage where he was too good to be playing club rugby, but hadn't quite shown enough to be worthy of a super rugby contract. And he said that um, he had this um, nasty um, shoulder injury, which, you know, mm -hmm. like pretty much held him back in the gym, but, you know, he still went out and played because he knew that if he didn't play, that would be him, you know, that would be his last contract and nobody else would give him a look in because it's like, well, if Wellington don't want him, why would anyone else want to pick him up? So he yeah. played through it and he's one of the, um, the good feel stories where he you know he played that well that year that he earned himself another Lions contract and then you know the next year he got surgery on it and was able to recover from it and he's ended up playing super rugby but there must be a lot of boys who do that you know like oh no nah, I've just got to tough it out and then make it worse and then miss out on those contracts and then have to live with the the lasting effects of those types of injuries yeah 100% I think um yeah shoulders and knees for young players Lots of my mates like who dislocate shoulders and don't either get it looked after properly, continue to dislocate them. And, you know, like, yeah, it is. It's, unfortunately, it's a brutal business, eh? Like, um, as much as it's probably one of the greatest careers I could have, I couldn't have done anything. I wouldn't have done anything different with my life because being in a team is such a special thing. It's like being on school camp with, like, 35 of your best mates every day and you get paid to do it. And you get to play a game that you love at the end of the week. But along with that, like there is a lot of stuff that comes with it, you know, pressure to perform and, you know, pressure to play in injuries and time away from families. And you end up like most professional people in the world, highly professional people have to be quite selfish to be good at, at what they do. And, and, and the things that I mentioned around that are part of it and particularly friends and family don't see you a lot. So yeah, like, the carrot is in a massive, awesome career, but don't get me wrong, it's not all it's not all roses and, and petals. And at the same time, you dedicate your life to a game and you're only as good to that team as if they need you or not. So no 
rugby team in the world is going to look after you for the rest of your life just because you played 100 games for them. Um, mm. If you can't play at a good enough level or you're not offering that team something, the old drafting gate comes out and you get flicked and you're in the pen with the other boys. So it's a real high when you're up there and it's a real low when you're not. And if you're not prepared to deal with that, then it's probably not a, not something you should go down the line of because it can be pretty tough mentally on a lot of people. And yeah, you know, I guess you know, I've seen the highs and I've seen the lows. So I'm fortunate enough to be able to ride them and, and still love it. Yeah, 100%, bro. I think that's the... It's the thing that the the person on the couch that goes on about, oh, these guys make too much money or they get this and they get that. I don't think they quite appreciate the stuff that you boys go through, not only on the training paddock to get yourself ready for these games, but also the, the psychological stuff that happens. And even on top of that, you know, for someone like yourself who, who cracked it so early and, you know, most of these athletes are cracking it when they're 21, 22. And like, I remember back to when I was 21. I mean, that's only two or three years ago, but I couldn't even imagine having to juggle, you know, like being a youngster trying to figure out life on top of, you know, having all this fame, having all this money, you know, like having to be somewhere. Um, and then, you know, like rugby or sport is a one of the only occupations where you get judged on a weekly basis. You know, you can go from being the man of the match one week to being the guy who costs your team the next week and then being dropped. Yeah, well, there's two things about that, but is that I've always, fuck, I learned it the hard way, but I'd rather be on the field in the fire than in the cans, in the stands throwing cans because pressure is a privilege. A lot of people say that, like people are going to have their opinions, but like at the end of the day, it doesn't matter for their opinions about you. It's what you feel and your people close to you. But interesting thing enough is I did a presentation to the Chiefs Academy when I was um, maybe 2014 and it's about money and the expectation of what people earn. So I had a group of academy boys and I said, look, if you're first year super 14, you might work really hard. You're about 21, 22, and you get a first year super contract and you're on 65 grand. So who thinks that's a lot of money and everyone put their hand up, the parents in the room. Now I said, well, you're probably worth 35 grand to your provincial union at that stage because you know, you're probably valuable if you're in the super team. So your first year pro rugby at 22, 23, you might earn hundred grand. And who's happy with that? They'll put their hand up. And I said, well, there's a tax man, he comes. So maybe after tax, you got about 69 grand and then you divide that by four, uh, divide that by 12 because, you know, monthly payments. So you might be getting paid 4,900 a month and then you rent a house for 1,500 and then you got three and a half grand left for the month. You buy a bit of piss and a, a new car and all of a sudden all your money's gone. So it's, it's, it's not a huge life-changing amount of money that once you've made it in rugby, your life's set. Um, and the average career for a rugby player is three years in New Zealand. So if you stick at it and you got to understand that it's it's not a business where you're going to set yourself up for life. It's, a, it's something that's your dream and your goal and you have to really want it. Otherwise, it's not going to work out. Mm. And um, yeah, it was really interesting. It's a bit of a shock to people when they sort of think about it in that terms, that people just immediately associates success and he hasn't got any troubles in his life because they're playing rugby and it's certainly not the case. Your top 15 players in New Zealand, you, you know, your McCaws and Carters and Nonus and all that who are exceptional, you know, they, they probably don't have to work again, but 90% of us who play rugby have to fucking work again and that's, that's a lot. <laughs> Mate, um, I was going to say, yeah, one I remember hearing this that that same sort of talk from a guy that you probably played with, uh, Scooter Waldrop. Yeah, 
Yeah, man, he's um he's working nine to five. Um, he's doing something to do with the bees these days, and he's loving it. I'm I'm glad that he's fallen into an occupation which, you know, he enjoys getting up for. But yeah, he said that the reality is for everyone else but your Dan Carters, you know, they have to go back to working a nine to five, and if they haven't got their investment stuff done properly by the end of it that they're still having to pay that same mortgage for that nice house that they bought when they were earning six figures and stuff like that, bro. So yeah, one of the harsh realities, but again, going back to you and um, we'll get back to one of your highs. You, you mentioned the fact that, you know, through injury, unfortunately, and, you know, maybe not quite being there in the coach's size, just yet you miss out on the all blacks for that tri nations tournament in 2008, but given your form with the stags at the back end of the year, you end up getting the call up for the all blacks end of year tour of Europe. Now, for you as a, as a young fella, like you said, you know, you'd always wanted to be a rugby player and playing for the All Blacks as a Kiwi is the pinnacle. So do you remember where you were and who you were with when that all happened, that whole team naming? Uh, yeah, so I, we'd been knocked out of the quarterfinals of ITM Cup and we're on, we were on a bender up in Queenstown um, south and always go up there as a dress-up after every year. And um, I got a text from the All Black manager saying, that there's a camp to be held. So they weren't naming the team and then I've been selected for the camp. And I was with Jimmy Cowan at the time and he's like, did you get your text, mate? And he's like, yeah. And he's like, well done, brother. You're like, you made your first All Black camp. And then I went to Jason Rutledge. I was like, shit cab, it's Sunday. Maybe we can fly up Tuesday. Maybe I should, you know, I should go home and um, get ready. And he's like, mate, you just made the fucking All Black camp. Well, that's even more reason to stay up and celebrate. <laughs> so yeah, we had a massive day. We ended up busting back to Macargo, but getting a bit home a bit later. Yeah, but I, I went up for the four-day camp, and then as I was leaving to go home from the camp, they told me then, which was pretty surreal. But as I mentioned, I set big goals early in my life, and I achieved them all quickly. So I want to play Super Rugby, want to play South, and want to be the All Blacks, want to captain the Colts. And they all just went bang, 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 bang. And like I was working hard to get there, but everything was happening. So again, like it was a massive feeling of like, wow, and also like nervousness and scaredness. And then... You know, looking back, it all happened pretty quickly as well. And I certainly probably wasn't um, ready or good enough to be at that level at probably that age, to be fair. But you go on to make your debut uh, against Scotland off the bench, bro. And uh, again, I, I do have some follow-up questions, um, obviously, like post your black career or, you know, after you made your debut. Yeah. But, you know, that, that still must have been a pretty special occasion putting on that all black jersey for the first time and, and running out there, um, especially over in Europe where their fans are so passionate. So again, my man, like what was that week like leading into the game, like knowing that you were going to be in the 23 and do you remember like how nervous you were or like, was this the most nervous you'd ever been for a rugby game? Um, well, no, because I'd grown up being nervous before most games was playing against older people. Uh, <laughs> but yes, yeah, certainly it was a massive occasion, which, come around pretty quick like can't like the game happened quick I actually I talked about you know having a turf toe injury on my left side of my foot and I just sort of recovered from that before the end of the tour and it was still really sore so I remember in the warm-up I sort of when I scrummed I'd like try to overcompensate and use my other foot a bit more and I remember hurting my other foot a little bit and I was like really like fuck I didn't know what to do wasn't serious but it was it was the same injury that I'd had on my left foot as it just as a little bit less so I remember coming in after the warm-up being like fuck I need to get some painkillers into me but it was a special occasion man like my dad flew over like he granddad was born in Scotland and my dad and my neighbor flew over for the first test and we got big Scottish heritage in our family 
and yeah, the Flower of Scotland and the New Zealand national anthem and all that. It was like couldn't have picked a better venue and and better place to have my first test and only test. Really, it was it was magic. Yeah, bro. I can only imagine. I, yeah, I didn't even like put two and two together with the whole Scottish tie. But then yeah, to have your old man over there would have made the occasion. Um, yeah, just that much better. But uh, you go on to yeah. play a, a mid a midweek game for the All Blacks against Munster. Yeah, which funnily enough, I mentioned Scooter before, that was his game for the All Blacks as well. But as you mentioned, those would end up being your only appearances for the national side. And now I read in an interview last year um, where you talked about the pressure of being an All Black and you even just alluded to it before, the fact that you'd nailed so many of the goals you'd set yourself, you know, so early in your career. But, you know, back to that story that I just mentioned, you know, you felt that you didn't quite deserve, well, you didn't feel like you deserved to be there. And, you know, that I guess the pressure of being a young All Black maybe sort of got to you in that time so I mean would you be open to elaborating on like what I just touched on and I guess you know considering you know how far you've come in your career you've had a bit of time to reflect on it so you know like what what, what sort of happened yeah. you know once you made that all-black team and you know what what were some of the reasons as to why you didn't quite get back there to be fair but like it wasn't really pressure I just don't think um, my scrummaging was good enough at 22 years old to be at international level and Everything else was tracking really well. Like, fuck, I was super fit. Like, when I come back in 09 to the Hondas, I was crazy fit um, and then picked up a knee injury just at the wrong time. And so many stories like that. People will tell you this, but, you know, through 10, 11, I was playing really good rugby. And again, like, I, I think being a tall, loose head prop who, it just took me a long time to get my scrummaging um, to a consistent enough level. And I don't think, I think the All Blacks just made a, a decision in 09 that um, we're going to back White through to the 011 World Cup. And Crocky's an awesome player. I mean, him are like pretty similar boys, like we're tall white fellas who can be put under a lot of scrutiny with our scrummaging because we stick out a bit. But I think, you know, they, they just punted Crocky and he was he's a great player. Um, and I was close to getting recalled over a couple of times of that period. I remember around 010 or I think 011 nearly got called away on the India tour. But the fact back then was there was only one prop on the bench. So you would carry, you would always start Tony Woodcock. You would have Owen Frank starting at tight head. And then you would have a guy who can play both sides on the bench, which was either Ben Franks or, you know, whoever. And, and me and White only played one side. We're a loose head. So there wasn't a lot of opportunity for us to get more tests. And I think after 2000 and whenever it was, 13 or 14, when they put the two prop rule on the bench, maybe looking back, I would have played more tests over that time. Who knows? Certainly there's a lot more opportunity to play more tests now because of that rule. And yeah, it wasn't pressure. And I always, like most people who played with me would like, I train really, really hard. And I always wanted to get back to being all black and put a lot of pressure on myself to get back. I never did, but I certainly don't regret how hard and the effort that I put in to try to get back into there. Unfortunately, I think when I was about 30, 31, my last year at the Chiefs, I started to scrum a lot more consistently. And then when I went to France, I ended up probably playing the best rugby in my life, scrumming against the toughest guys in the world and played 70 games over in the top 14. And one year got voted the top loose head in the competition. And and that for me was a like a real nice way to know that I finally became good enough at my craft to compete at like the highest level in the world. Mm -hmm. um, a little bit of like sadness around that I couldn't do that in New Zealand and maybe if I did that in New Zealand through that period where there was lots of opportunities 
and the All Blacks, you know, there was lots of injuries and loose heads were getting swapped in and out. Who knows? Maybe if I was back and playing really well, I could have got some more tests, but mate, I had a great time in France and met some lifetime friends and earned some good money and and felt really respected in that competition. And I think that was a, a nice way to know that I, at the, by the end, I sort of got there, you know what I mean? Yeah, bro, I, I, I can get there. Um, and, and before we roll onto that, because again, I've, I've got I've got some follow-up questions for there, but again, touching on stuff that perhaps, you know, your, your average show blog doesn't quite recognize or, or wouldn't understand, you know, the fact that you were in All Black so young, and I mean, you mentioned the fact that, you know, the pressure stuff never got to you, but did it ever bother you, you know, perhaps, you know, like family and friends or teammates or whoever else, you know, asking, oh, hey, bro, you know, like, why aren't you back in the All Blacks, you know, considering you'd knocked it off so early? Like, did that, I don't know, I don't know whether people pestered you about it, but does that stuff, did that bother you well, at all? I, What's your career? I, I just thought I was, I was competitive. I was competing and I thought I was going to get back in. So when I got dropped in 09, 010, 11, I was still hungry. I was like, yeah, fuck yeah. Like still playing really, really well. And then I, a lot of negative media come around me around probably like, cause the write-ups are awesome. <laughs> I say to all the boys, the write-up's good. The write-down's not very fun. And a massive learning thing for a lot of people, I always say, if like, if you base your self-worth off, like good media and good articles and people talking well about you, then you deserve to base your self-worth off when those people start talking shit about you because they're not the ones who know you intimately and they're not the ones in your circle of trust. And like, you've really got to have your circle tight and have good, honest feedback. And like, I was always like looked after in the media when I was young and then it turned on me like, oh, you know, he's just can't, he can't scrum. He's, He's never going to make an all black. He's too shit. He's, he's not physical enough and all the shit come with it. But in fact, I knew as a person and as a player, I got better and better and better as older I got and was still playing really good rugby. And although I never made the all blacks again, like fuck, I'm still 36 and playing rugby. Not many people do that and still getting contracts and still getting paid to play. And, and I thought most of the time I played in my life, I played at a pretty high level and never let myself down. It was just, you know, it was hard to get consistency right with my scrummaging. And once the Hollanders lost Carl Heyman, we never really had any big tight heads there. And, you know, like we, we struggled a little bit at scrum time through my career at the Hollanders. And then, um, yeah, like at the Chiefs, I said, I started to get good. And then I went overseas. So, look, it just wasn't meant to be. Um, but I certainly don't have any regrets about my attitude and effort that went into getting back there. And if I had a, like, been a shit trainer and dropped for like reasons that were like in my control I think I would have had a lot more regret but I was it was out of my control to the extent that I was doing everything I could around my scrummaging to get better and and maybe the All Blacks just didn't see me as getting good enough so that's life but I certainly worked my ass off to try to get back there so I'll always um, have that in my mind that I, I don't have any regrets about that yeah, bro, it's it's pretty unfortunate the way that the the media can misconstrue stuff, and you know, I guess the reach that they have to a lot of rugby fans around New Zealand, and they paint a certain picture of you. Unfortunately, no, that that's it for you because, like what I've seen with a lot of boys, and maybe even with yourself, you know, they they stop talking to the media, so you don't even get your opportunity because you know stuff like podcasts and Twitter wasn't around, you know, in your heyday, to where you could actually go out and say your piece, and so everything was controlled by the media, and yeah. Like you said, you were on a high as a youngster, but you know, obviously, when 
times took a turn for the worse um, as your career progressed, even though, like you said, you thought you were getting better or you knew you were getting better as a player, you know, like none of that came to the light because of the way that the the media has set you out to be, bro. So, I mean, you mentioned the fact that you you round up your career uh, in New Zealand with the Chiefs before heading off to Montpellier. Was that move to France just to get away from all the bullshit here and perhaps, you know, like just having a change of scenery just to re- recapture your passion or? Oh, look, it come by chance, really. Like I went over to play for the Barbarians against Argentina and was still really low on self-confidence just because of getting belted around in the media and and not making the All Blacks against everyone seeing that as like success, you know, like if, mm. and I it fucks me off New Zealand people think like that. Like they'll they'll talk about 30, 40 test props like, oh, they just haven't reached their potential. They're in the fucking All Blacks. <laughs> like you make the All Blacks, you reach your potential. And like just because you're not Richie McCaw or Dan Carter and dominate it, which is like they're very special players. But for someone like Offa Tuliasi and all them boys, they work so hard to maximise their potential and, and just the New Zealand public around some people and some things just, yeah, they just put on a pedal. And I think I was tired of that. I think I was down on self-confidence. And even when I went to France and Montpellier, I was still down on confidence. I was still playing well, but I wasn't really enjoying it. I wasn't really until I went to America where I got my confidence back and then, I went to Poe and, and was just on fire when I went there. Just had like three or four years of the best rugby of my life. And maybe that was just from getting away from that little break and, and going to America and getting my confidence back, I think. You talk about getting your confidence back, but surely there would have been a massive drop off in standards. So when you say confidence, was it more so, you know, like just being in a great team environment that got you back to, you know, enjoying getting up for training every day and you know, you're away from the limelight because you're in America? Like what, what all sort of went into you? finding oh, your feet no just confidence and and exactly what you said like wow shit like why am i playing rugby like when i was 12 i i wanted to play with my friends and my goal was to get a stadium jacket and stay in a hotel with my mates like and then like i wanted to play 100 games to south and then i always wanted to do that and wanted to do that and then just as you said getting caught up on like why aren't you in the all blacks like you're not you're not this you're not that you're not that and I was the kind of guy, if I got told something, I go work on it. And then you just work yourself in circles, brother. And then I think just the simplicity of it, like being able to play rugby, I was playing well. I was really fit. Fuck, we trained really hard over there in America. I'd say that much. And then we all enjoyed a beer after and it just stripped back the simplicity of why I love rugby. And I went to play with the same attitude and fucking just was on fire. As I said, like it was just meant to be really. So um, yeah, maybe as you talked about, it was getting out of that New Zealand environment and prolong my career and still going now and still love it. And I was really happy last year that I got to come back and play for Otago. And I actually thought, like for me, I had a lot to prove. I wanted to show the rest of New Zealand that, you know, I've been away and now I can scrum and I'm still a good player. And I played well every game and I thought I scrum really well last year. And, but at the end of the day, it doesn't really give a fuck what people think about me when I come back. It was just for me in my own mind, knowing that I can come back and compete at this level and still do a good job. And it was really satisfying. I can only imagine everything coming full circle. But you mentioned the fact that you you picked up some rugby for Otago last year. And I do have to ask, you know, given your history, you know, with being like a <laughs> tried and true Southlander, playing over 100 games for them, captaining them, being, you know, being amongst the boys, you know, during probably like the highest of the highs in Southland's history, how did you not get an opportunity to go back to Southland? 
And then, you know, like of all the teams that you had to go to, Otago, like how, how did that all work out? Yeah, um, really good question. When I actually, after I played in America, wanted to come back to Southland and my one of my good friends at the time was coaching and sort of led me on really and took me down a garden path and evidently dropped me from the Southland team the day before the team got named and I was stuck in America without a contract and a lot of the things he said to me about why he was dropping me weren't true and um, and, and it was a pretty shitty time to be fair like I'd done a lot of a lot of rugby and a lot of living and a lot of friendship with his father and he thought that I was a catalyst of this problem of the decline of South and rugby and so I left and went back to Poe you know and it was pretty hard and then you know, Southland went on to lose fucking 20 games in a row or something. And <laughs> and I was the problem in his eyes. And apparently, the yeah, for whatever reason, I don't want to get too far into it, but I was really gutted. Um, 13 years at an organisation. And I do, like, when I'm invested in some, to something, I put my heart and soul into it. And it was a real kick in the guts for me. And it taught me a real lesson to be loyal to people, not to organisations. And when I come back south and offered me an opportunity to be involved with them and my best mate Tom Donnelly, who's head coach of Otago, offered me an opportunity to play and be a scrum coach at Otago. And I just thought, mate, this guy's been my friend my whole life and um, it's a big move to say no to Southland. But I looked at the Otago squad and it's a far better talent of squad. And I thought if I'm going to start my coaching and want to play well, I think this squad's got a real chance of winning a competition. And I haven't looked back since, mate. Like, I had a blast with all the people um, in the team last year, the players, coaches, and I can't wait to get back there this year. And, and yeah, like this weekend at South and Otago, first game of the ITM Cup, and I'm so revved up for it. Um, can't wait to get out there and see how the boys go. And I don't really look back. I look forward, even though my old man was a bit filthy with me and um, and a few of my mates. And, again, people's opinions who didn't matter all had something to say, but at the end of the day, I don't really give a shit. Like the view out the windscreen's better than the review room. It's bigger and it's better. And I didn't look back. I just went forward and I love it. Oh, I love that, bro. Staying loyal to people uh, and not organizations. So, yep. As we mentioned before, I think we, we, we might've mentioned um, while we were off here, bro, like you're doing some coaching stuff for Otago again this year. So once you're out of um, managed isolation, you're back on the ground in Dunedin and that's you for the next, what, three months? Yeah, three months, bro. I've been really passionate about coaching my whole life. Like being captain of teams, you get a real insight into the week of preparation. And I ended up doing a degree at Massey Uni, um, Bachelor of Sports Science Coaching Management, and always wanted to get into it because, you know, I've had great coaches and bad coaches and want to put it all together. So, yeah, I was full-time coaching in, in Austin and playing, which was really busy. I got a little taste of doing the scrum last year for Otago, which was pretty low-key, my mate. He did all the rest of it, but this year I'm heading back to do the set piece, which is a big job. Um, malls, mall defence, line-outs, line-out defence, scrums, and yeah, I'm really looking forward to getting back and working with the group and hopefully making a fist of, of coaching and, and at the end of the day, just positively impacting players and making them want to be better and, and making sure they're happy in their environment and enjoying their footy. So yeah, it's been a long two weeks in ISO. I can't wait to get out on Thursday and be with the boys. Unreal, bro. And then kicking on from that, what's the plan from there? Are you looking to go back to America or is it all sort of up in the air at this stage? Yeah, look, I, I've got an opportunity to go back there, a really good one. So um, 
just needed to take a breath really. Um, my missus is in Dunedin and she's got a good job and I was away for six months this year, which was a bit tough. And then just want to come back, spend some time with her, um, get on the ground with the Otago team and get my confidence up and start coaching how I want to coach with them like I was in Austin. And then over the next month or two, I'll make a decision whether I stay here or go back and um, either one of them will be good. I don't know. Yeah, hopefully there's some pretty exciting stuff coming up in the future. Fair call, bro. And um, yeah, I'd expect nothing less than that, you know, given your track record so far. And I guess that, that's a wrap on really what I wanted to take from your your rugby career and, and where you're at now. I'm very appreciative of how transparent you were, my man. But I like to wrap up each of my interviews with two segments. Uh, the last one being what I think to be the funny one. But first, bro, could you take us through your game day routine? Game day routine? Fuck, I used mm-hmm. to be so meticulous, like... I used to have to make sure my socks were perfect, my boots were perfect. I'd run around the the flag. We always had a thing in Southland that you never cut corners. So if we were at a training drill, we'd run out and around the field, around the furthest away corner and back to the drill because we don't cut corners. So no matter where the warm-up finished, me and Jason Rutledge would always run like 40 metres around this flag and come back and meet the team. Um, yeah, I've become a lot more relaxed, but I used to be pretty grumpy, eh? Like, I like just to get up, chill, um, like to go for coffee with the boys. It's hard to be around people who aren't in your environment for the day. Like, so if my missus is at home or I was at home with my parents, I'd get a little bit agitated about shit. <laughs> so I found that I was better off around people um, all by myself. But yeah, no, the older I got, the more chilled I am. I just used to sit in the changing rooms and listen to music. And my music that I listen to isn't really hype up music. It's like, music that reminds me of like good times uh like new year's parties with my friends and like i like to be like really not like fizzed up and not like low just in like a really excited state and that's probably me really more focused on like a group in poe we'd always have a whatsapp group and we'd be in the change room the french boys would be going hard like they're so fizzed up before games and we'd be sitting there texting each other about where we're going for a drink after the game. So I used to love that <laughs> kind of stuff. <laughs> Listen, bro, unreal. All right, um, on to my last one, bro. Um, it's called 10 in the bin. So I've just got yeah. 10 questions for you uh, and you just answer them as honestly as possible, please. Uh, question number one, what is your vessel of choice at a pre-drinks on a night out? Spates Ultra Summer. Beautiful. I like it. It's one of my go-tos as well. Uh, number two, who's the biggest coach's pet you've been around? Oh, shit. <laughs> uh, mate, I don't know. Uh, Andy Ellis? <laughs> <laughs> he's a legend, though. I love him. Interesting, bro. That's probably why he's um, he's still playing now, right? He's playing in New York? Nah, he's just a good boy. Um, he just got, He's got a good relationship with everybody. He doesn't He's such a confident, good lad. It just, maybe it just comes off as the wrong way. <laughs> All right. Uh, who was your idol growing up? Uh, rugby, Zinzan Brook. Mm-hmm. Were you practicing your drop kicks? Oh, I used to love it. I used to goal kick until I was 12, and then I was number eight, and then I got too fat and had to go to the front row. <laughs> oh, well, well you, you've got to where you are playing in the front row, so I guess that's um, <laughs> some sort of silver lining. Uh, what's your must-do on a day off? Now it's computer work, unfortunately. Um, must do on a day off is some kind of activity. So it's either golf, hunting, fishing, or 
massive fan of like in Austin or Hamilton always going for a swim. So you like going to different swimming holes and, and rivers, oceans. I love swimming. Nice. I always find that weird with you, you professional boys. Like when I ask you what you get up to on your day off, you know, considering the training load and the impact you take during your games that you guys choose to go out and go hunting or going and playing golf, you know, doing something physical. Like I get active recovery, but I would have thought it'd be something more chill. I don't know. Most of us are pretty ADD and like it's our one time to go do something that we love. So yeah, I mostly golf on carts and hunt on motorbikes. So you, you, you do, <laughs> you try to limit the walking, but sometimes it doesn't happen, unfortunately. All right. What is your favorite cheat meal? Mm, McDonald's. I love cheeseburgers. Just uh, any cheeseburger, the simplicity. I love it. <laughs> you see my man. Uh, if you were a rugby player or a rugby coach, what would you be? What would I be or what would I love to be? I'd love to be the lead guitarist of the biggest rock band in the world with like three of my best mates on bass, drum and lead singer and just like blast around the world having the time of your lives. Um, but realistically, <laughs> I'd probably be um, in the farming sector somewhere, maybe have been on the family farm and then like working for some kind of agricultural agency probably all right keeping the family trade alive who was the cheapest teammate you've been around oh kenny lynn and josh becuis we used to run a section in the it's actually a lie but they're actually great fellows we used to just give them shit but we would run a um team newspaper for the hondas every week and it would be different articles and one of the sections we used to run was save a penny with lurch which is josh becuis and we would always just take the piss out of them about buying rounds and leaving and even there yeah, it was always good fun so i'd just say them too because it would piss them off great work all right um who's an artist or song you've got on repeat at the moment you got any recommendations yeah i mean massive into lab like everybody is really controller a bit of their older stuff and then we played it so much me and peels and the american team that our American team now is infatuated with 660 and LAB and um, they they don't hear anything else because we take over the speakers. So it's been quite good. <laughs> uh, unreal. Good to get that New Zealand music uh, well and truly abroad. Um, who was the biggest grub you've played with and against? With? Um, a couple of club boys, my good mates. They used to love it. My brother, actually, he's a bit of a grub. And um, Jason Rutledge, they love always... Whenever we played in club games, we'd always end up in biff with someone. Um, and against heaps of them, especially at club rugby, maybe professionally, I think I've said this before, men, Colsey, we used to just fucking get after each other when we played each other, Dan Coles. Um, we were always cheap shotting each other and I ended up punching him in the mouth. He didn't have his mouth guard in. I split my um, massive cut on my hand and he knocked his tooth out down in a game in Invercargill. And yeah, from there, we just sort of just every game used to climb into it. But I used to love it because he's a good boy. He's just, you know, goes hard on the field and, and, and good man off it. And yeah, so yeah, he was always uh, at probably professional level for a few years there. I used to love button heads with him. Oh, that's the way to go about it, bro. As long as you can go hammer and tongs on the field, but once you leave it, bro, just just leave it all there. Um, all right, bro. Uh, last question, and you just got to finish off the sentence for me. Saturdays are for rugby days. 
Oh, bro. Saturday rugby ritual. That, well, that, well, that's literally been your ritual your whole life by the sounds of it. <laughs> it is. Saturday's rugby day from when I was five till I'm 36. <laughs> bro, and it seems like, uh, well, it seems like they're going to continue um, in the future, especially with, with what you've got coming up uh, with Otago, my man. But yeah, that's a wrap for this podcast. Uh, once again, I just want to say thank you very, very much for your time. I'm very grateful to learn a little bit about your story and your career, all of the highs, all of the lows, and hopefully for whoever listens to this and, you know, perhaps if there are a couple of players, they can take something from this, bro, my man. But all the best of luck um, with Otago coming up. Hopefully the next two days fly by for you in isolation. And, yeah, if I'm ever down your way or if you're ever up in Wellington, please do sing out and um, you've got a Spates Ultra Summit with your name on it. Yeah, cheers, bro. I appreciate the time. I enjoyed it. (laughs) All right, my man. I'll catch you later.